Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter, Do You Death. Hello, Phoebe. Hi, Dad. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't know where time is going at the moment. I'm sure you are extremely busy as well. <laughs> it's just insane. Like, I don't, I just don't understand how it's nearly the end of June. Like, what? What? <laughs> What's going on with time? I know. It's been like, I can't believe it's been such a long time since we recorded last. I can't believe all the things we've done in that time. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that, yeah, it's just, time is just flittering away. <laughs> yes, two young boys, they take up your time, I am sure, as well as uh, working do. and everything yeah. else you do. It's all very, very busy. Just crazy to think that after today we're on the down would slope towards Christmas. So. <laughs> yes, it uh, happens to be the longest day of the year today. It is. So uh, it's as light yeah. as it's going to get in the mornings and evenings. Thank goodness for that. I, I won't. <laughs> yeah, I won't tell a lie. I'm not disappointed that it is going to get darker in the mornings. <laughs> I love yeah. the light evenings, but oh, when it's bright at like half past five or whatever, <laughs> it's just yeah. Even with blackout blinds and things, you still know it's do anything. Bright. Yeah, I've got yeah. two children that are waking up at like half past four or five o'clock every day because it's bright, <laughs> even with blackout blinds. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not looking forward to that. When we went camping, we were fully preparing ourselves for it to for them to wake up at silly o'clock. And, yeah, Otto was up at half past four, ready to, yeah. ready to start his day. Yes. <laughs> the other thing that's been taking up a little bit of my time, but not really very much of my time at all, is uh, I joined a darts league at the end of last year. Exciting. Um, Really exciting. Turns out it's the perfect sport for me. Standing still, <laughs> drinking and throwing things. So uh, I'm not that good at it. I'm getting better. Uh, I very much enjoy it though. And the, our team came second in our league, which is exciting. But Brilliant. also four of us, me included, played in a ladies fours final and we won. So a trophy and it's very exciting that I get to keep forever. Well done. I'm very proud of you. So this week, Phoebe, when it comes to our true crime story, I'm going to mm. cover part one of a two-part, not, not exactly case, but two cases that happened in pretty much the same place, but about four years apart. Cool. And the place in question is The Crumbles, which is okay. an area of East Sussex between Eastbourne and Pevensey Bay. Nice. Now, some of our listeners may know of Pevensey Bay. It is an area with a very shingly beach with breakwaters that go down into the water when the tide is sort of high and when the tide goes out. To be fair, it is quite sandy when the tide's out um, and you can see the ends of the breakwaters. And you can see how all the shingle builds up on the western side of them and, and, and it's a lot lower mm. on the eastern side because of the way that the the sea, the longshore drift, moves from west to east along the south coast there. Part of the area called the Crumbles is where the Eastbourne Marina is now located. It's quite a nice okay. area sort of to the east of Eastbourne on, on the way out towards Pevensey Bay. And Pevensey Bay is where my nana and granddad retired to in the 1950s. Nice. Um, in fact, there's a picture of you, Phoebe, on the beach of Pevensey Bay on Christmas Day in 1992. 
nice. when we went, it was a bit cold and miserable. But um, we Doesn't went to visit. Uh, we went to visit old Nan, and nice. it was about three days before she died. Wow. Okay. So um, yeah, she was ninety-five, and uh, we went to see her. She was still living at home in her own little bungalow there on the Beachlands Estate in Pevensey Bay. But also Pevensey Bay is where William the Conqueror landed on British soil just a few days before the Battle of Hastings took place. Yeah, of course. It took them a couple of days to get from Pevensey Bay. To battle. To battle, which wasn't really called battle then. It was just a... No, (laughs) just Just a a hill. A hill and a field and stuff sort of north of Hastings. Yeah. (laughs) So it's an area that I think you, and as I say, some of our listeners may know well. Mm. So in part one, I'm going to tell you the story of Irene Munro. In August 1920, 17-year-old Irene Violet Munro decided not to go on holiday with her family to Scotland to stay with relatives like they did most years. But instead, she wanted to go alone to Eastbourne. I suppose at the t- when, uh, in, the t- in that time, it was... Um, she was 17 and she wanted to spread her wings a bit, maybe. But yeah, yeah she went alone. Maybe that's why those people retired to Eastbourne because they all went there like in the 20s when they were like young people and then decided to go back there as <laughs> old people. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Irene's mother gave her permission, allowing her daughter to do this. And on August the 16th, she arrived in Eastbourne and checked into her prearranged lodgings on Seaside Road which is right in the centre of Eastbourne, right in the centre of town. So over the following days, she wrote to her mum to tell her that she had arrived safely and what she'd been doing, and she's known to have taken a trip up Beachy Head, and she initially appeared to be enjoying her holiday. That's good. Have you ever been up Beachy Head? No. It's, It's quite interesting. It's on the west side of Eastbourne, and it's literally the coast goes right up. It's a quite... um, Quite a high piece of, well, chalk, I suppose it is. Yeah. Um, a bit like the White Cliffs of Dover, but just outside Eastbourne. Round a bit. There's a lovely um, lighthouse there. Uh, okay. And it's quite picturesque, but it's also got a rather notorious reputation of... Uh, yeah, it's quite a suicide spot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Beachy Head, quite a landmark. I'll add it to my list. Within a few days... She told her landlady of the place that she was staying that she had wished she'd gone with the rest of her family. Oh, no. So whether she's feeling a bit homesick, missing her family, thinking it was perhaps a bad idea to have come on her own, what, what did she think she was going to do? I don't know how long she was planning to stay, presume a week. Yeah. Anyway, there she was in Eastbourne on her own, looking for things to do. Now, also in Eastbourne were a couple of unemployed ex-servicemen. Jack Field and William Gray. And over the last few weeks, Field and Gray had been regulars at the bar of the Albemarle Hotel, typically appearing to have very little money. On this particular day, they had just asked for and were refused free drinks. <laughs> oh, no. Can you imagine doing that? <laughs> Can I have a free drink? <laughs> I'm sure it's, people would uh, say yes, right? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, Gray, William Gray, promised the landlady of the bar of the Albemarle Hotel 
to return later with more money. Now, as fate would have it, on August the 19th, Field and Grey happened to meet Irene. Oh. The local men struck up an apparent friendship with the young woman and they offered to show her the sights and to take her for a drink. So they did that sort of in the morning, late morning, and then she went back to her lodgings on Seaside Road for lunch. That afternoon, she mentioned to her landlady that she was going to Hamden Park, not the football stadium in Scotland, right. <laughs> but it's a little town just inland from Eastbourne. Yeah, it's just a little area which perhaps she could get a bus there to have a look around, was her thought. Okay. But in actual fact, she didn't go to Hamden Park. She went to meet Field and Grey, presumably for an afternoon of carrying on wandering around Eastbourne, going for some drinks, just generally having a laugh. Okay. You know, the sort of thing, maybe? Yeah. And she agreed to meet them at a bus stop opposite the Archery Tavern, which is near Pevensey. Now, Pevensey is a little bit inland from Pevensey Bay, and Pevensey is where Pevensey Castle is. Okay. So um, I've, I remember from a history book years ago, Pevensey Castle is about a mile inland from the sea. But okay. But whenever it was built, a thousand years or whatever ago, the sea actually came up to its walls. Oh, okay. And, and, and all that area is, is very flat. It's quite bleak and desolate in some respects. Right. Very flat. And I think that that area is kind of like reclaimed land. Oh, where okay. Where it's been drained. And, and the odd thing, it never struck me as odd at the time because I was only little <laughs> when I used to go to the seaside at Bevensey Bay. Yeah. But to get to the beach, you had to go up this quite okay. high flight of st concrete stairs, really wide. There was the there was the kiosk at the bottom of the stairs, at the bottom of the steps where they sold ice creams and newspapers and things like that, tiny little kiosk. And this big flight of stairs that went up. And then oh, when you got to the top okay. there, then the beach then went down in front of you. So I think all of that right. was like a great big huge bank that had been built all along that stretch of coast. Okay. To keep the sea back a bit. Right, that makes sense. So the land sort of... A, from there, a mile inland is very flat because I think at one point it was just the seabed. Right, okay. Where they met was in actual fact in Pevensey. Now, multiple eyewitnesses saw the men jump from a bus and meet Irene at that bus stop. One recalled seeing her walking arm in arm with 19-year-old Jack Field as the three headed in the direction of the crumbles at around 4pm. Unfortunately, Irene had no idea of the sinister intentions of her new friends. Mm -mm. But when they reached a secluded section of the beach, the men struck. Mm -mm. Now, the following is taken from notes that were taken at the subsequent trial. So, you know, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. I figured two men luring a single woman out on, yeah. on her own was pretty, uh, pretty foreboding, to be honest. Yeah, so so the, the notes as recorded at the trial explain that. Once the three had reached a quiet area approximately 300 yards from the closest inhabited property, still within sight of Pemsey Castle, Irene exclaimed that she was tired before reaching into her silk handbag for a handkerchief which she used to dab her face. As she did so, 
The two men looked at each other, and Gray nodded to his companion. Field then raised his walking stick and poised the weapon at shoulder height as Gray attempted to snatch Irene's handbag. Although startled, the girl maintained her grip on her bag, shouting, Hey, what do you think you're... And in response to that, Field struck Irene across her mouth with the metal end of his walking stick, which dislodged two of her teeth, loosened two others, and caused her to fall backwards and scream in pain. While Gray shouted, Shut up! Field then exclaimed to Gray, For God's sake, do something! So Gray grabbed a lump of ironstone brick, which was located close to where she'd fallen, bearing in mind this is sort of shingly, beachy, sort of desolate area. She was then extensively bludgeoned about the face and head with this large lump of brick, sustaining several fractures and causing her to die of shock. Oh, my goodness. That was the the conclusion. Oh, Irene. Although she was most likely deeply unconscious, Munro may have lived for up to 30 minutes before actually succumbing to her injuries. Gray concealed her handbag beneath his coat and took off a nine-carat gold ring from one of her fingers. Then both the men hastily buried her body on the beach in a makeshift grave, measuring about four foot deep. So I presume it must have been dug in the sort of the, the shingle and... Yeah. Beach, beach stuff. First they covered her body with her coat, and they placed her hat over her face. So then they, they covered her back up, but one of her feet remained exposed above ground. Oh, no. That was a rookie error. Yeah. So she was lying dead beneath the sand and shingle. Her killers went back to the Albemarle Hotel, where they were noted to be flirting with the barmaids, mm. and they suddenly seemed to have plenty of cash to pay for their drinks. Oh, dear. Now, this protruding foot would be pivotal in bringing the men to justice. Her body was discovered within 24 hours. I'm surprised it wasn't discovered a bit quicker, but uh, discovered within 24 hours because a 13-year-old boy was running along the beach and almost tripped over it. Oh, Oh, God, can you imagine? After Irene was found, police officers from Eastbourne and Hailsham were called in to investigate a large blood-covered rock and two shovels, where they'd come from, were quickly removed from the crime scene. The discovery of her body was reported in the local press the following day, which led Field and Gray to go back to a local military camp close by to Eastbourne to try and re-enlist. I guess they were trying to get off the grid sort of thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. This murder was deemed so significant, a Scotland Yard investigator was tasked with overseeing the investigation, the the probe into what happened. Anyway. An autopsy, however, did reveal that Irene had not been sexually assaulted, allowing police to quickly discount any concerns that her killing may have been sexually motivated. That's one thing, I guess. Yeah. So poor Irene and her poor family, who uh, Mm. I guess they must have found out pretty soon, was killed just for some beer money, basically. It's awful. After she'd been identified, the landlady came forward and she told the police of Irene's plan to go to Hamden Park. 
So police began to visit cinemas, hotels and bars in the area, including the Albemarle, to see if they could find any witnesses to what she might have done that afternoon. At the Albemarle, they learned of the two men called Billy and Jack and their sudden change in spending habits after what mm. appeared to be a bit of a windfall. Now, there, there was a group of about five workmen who had been labouring on the crumbles on the afternoon of the murder, and they came forward as witnesses. Although they didn't actually see the event happen itself, the bludgeoning and the, everything, they were able to identify Irene as the woman that they had seen walking with the two men, one of whom had been carrying this walking stick with a dog's head decoration on the handle, the, me the metal okay. on the stick. Another witness recalled the same distinctive stick in the hand of a male he'd seen with Irene and another man on that same afternoon, recalling how they had climbed onto the beach together. So he'd just seen these three people sort of getting onto the beach. It was this man, Frederick Wells, who picked Grainfield out when he saw them talking to three young women while he was helping police inquiries. On August the 24th, Field and Gray were arrested on the suspicion of murder. But convicting them would not prove simple. Together, they concocted a story around their time at the Albemarle Hotel on the afternoon of August the 19th, claiming that they split their drinking session by going to Gray's home for dinner, i.e. they were there in the morning, asked for free drinks, went away, allegedly to Gray's house for some food, and then they yep. came back. Rather okay. than they went away, killed a young girl. <laughs> yeah. Got money and came back. <laughs> and to make things a little bit more difficult for the police, none of the five labourers that saw Irene walking with two men could positively identify who those men were. Right, Okay. But there were other witnesses, including the bus driver, who confirmed that he had taken Gray and Field from the Albemarle to the Archery Tavern, where he saw them meet up with a female with dark hair. Okay. And there was nobody that could support the story that was provided by Gray and Field in as much as that they said they went back to Gray's house for dinner. Right. So they got people that had seen them out and about meeting this young girl, but nobody could corroborate their story that they'd gone back to one of their houses for dinner. The breakthrough in the case came when a sailor called William Putland saw an image of Irene in a newspaper and told his commanding officer that he had seen her in the company of two men while he was on leave in Eastbourne, and he met police and told them of his account. Now, the lie that Field and Gray had told about the going for dinner unraveled even further when a local girl came forward to say that the pair had tried to convince her to give them an alibi. Right. So it's not looking good for them. Basically. Not looking good for them, no. Searches of the men's home led to the recovery of the distinctive walking stick, identified mm. by many of the witnesses, and other clothing included in descriptions of the men who were seen with Irene before her death. So having been arrested on the 24th of August, they were actually charged on September the 4th. I don't know if they'd be kept for that long. It's a long time. You couldn't keep somebody in custody for that long now without charging no, them. No, I don't think so, no. But um, apparently on September the 4th, Field and Gray were finally charged with murder. 
Their trial came to Lewis in December of 1920, and of course both men denied murder. Jurors were told that the pair were friends, they were both unemployed ex-servicemen, and they were men with track records of petty theft and robbery. It was highlighted that no one could back up their version of events, while there were a whole load of witnesses who came forward with details of how they had seen them with Irene, mm. or how they suddenly came into money in the hours after her death. Convenient. Yeah. William Gray was represented by the renowned defence barrister Sir Edward Marshall Hall. I don't know if um, there's a series, I, I think you can hear them on, um, it's the sort of thing you get on, what's it called? BBC, uh, yeah, um, Radio 4 Extra. Oh, okay. And there's like the cases of Edward Marshall Hall and they're like dramatisations of uh, okay. um, Edward Marshall Hall's cases and things where, oh, and he, cool. and he, he did have a reputation for getting most of his clients off because he was a defence barrister. It's good that he had a reputation for well, being a good defence barrister. <laughs> so even though William Gray was represented by Cedric Marshall Hall, it was only Jack Field who actually took the stand, denying that he had ever met Irene and claiming the cash he suddenly had was the unemployment benefit that he had received on the morning of the murder. Convenient. So, he claimed that the two of them had attempted to re-enlist in the army the very next day because they feared that their benefit payments were about to be reduced. Okay, Because they've been claiming unemployment benefits since they came out of the army. And so they wanted, wanted more to benefits. go back in. So, yeah, well, it's <laughs> yeah. so, a wage, I suppose. But, um, that's probably a more legitimate way to get money than killing young girls. Yeah, well, they should have thought of that before they actually killed her, shouldn't they? Yeah. However, the two men's denials were blown out of the water when a prisoner who had been held with Gray at Maidstone Jail said that the suspect had told him that he'd been with Irene on the afternoon of her murder. I mean, that Ooh. often happens, isn't it? You hear jailhouse yeah. snitches that say that so-and-so... Uh, and so, and do, do prisoners really tell other prisoners that they were involved? I think it's something to do like boasting, isn't it? Like saying, oh, you'll never guess what. And then they like... Yeah. most about it or they catch them off guard or whatever i think they've got nothing to lose but yeah i think it happens quite a lot yeah perhaps not a good idea to do it before your trial probably uh, not but <laughs> probably not a good idea to kill somebody <laughs> yeah that is true uh and this uh well this other prisoner also claimed that gray had tried to persuade another inmate to say that he had seen irene with a sailor around the same time of her death Interesting. <laughs> so trying to get someone else to lie that they'd seen Irene with a completely different person. Sounds legit. However, several people in the prison, staff and inmates, backed up these claims that uh, that Gray had tried to ask people to lie <laughs> for yeah. him, basically. So it won't be much of a surprise to find out that the jury took just over an hour to find both of the men guilty of murder. Now, for some reason, the juror's recommendation was that they receive mercy. I'm not entirely sure on what grounds, but there you go. That's weird. But the judge, Mr. Justice Avery, was having none of it, and he sentenced both of them to hang at Wandsworth Jail. Both men filed appeals against their convictions, and these appeals were heard 
on the 17th and 18th of January 1921. Each blame the other for Irene Munro's murder at these hearings. The Lord Chief Justice rejected these appeals, describing these latest accounts of events by both men as desperate, last-ditch fabrications concocted to escape the consequences of their crime by placing blame upon the other. Sounds like it. Yeah. I think they weren't very bright, really, were they, these two, one way or another? No, I don't think so. So both men were executed by Thomas Pierpoint at Wandsworth Prison at 8am on the 4th of February, 1921. It was quick times. Yeah, well within the six months, as, as we've seen. Yeah. Two reporters were permitted to witness the executions, and there were approximately 200 members of the public waiting outside the jail gates for news that wow. they were finally dead. Reports from the time indicate that both men walked stoically and unassisted to the scaffold. Neither men confessed to Irene's murder before his execution, although both left messages of gratitude in their cells for letters and expressions of sympathy that they had received from family and friends as they awaited their execution. Wow. So that is one of the Crumbles murders. Mm. The next one in the Crumbles murders is a little bit more gory and gruesome okay. uh, than that. And uh, I'll tell you that in our next episode, Phoebe. Wow. Thank you very much for that. Are there any photos to share? There are yes. some. Yeah, there are. Yeah, there's, there's um, pictures of Irene. There's pictures of Field and Grey uh, turning up at court, things like that. There's pictures of the jury when they actually visited the beach. Where, wow, okay. where the murder happened. Yeah, so there are a few. Cool. Uh, will you share them? I will. I will put them on our Facebook page. Dad and Daughter Do Death. And on our Instagram page. At Dad and Daughter Do Death. And if you'd like to talk to us about this case or any other case, you can always email us. At Dad and Daughter Do Death at gmail.com. It's always good to hear from you. Yes, thank you very much for listening. Apologies that we're not so on it with episodes at the moment. <laughs> but uh, yeah. we're, we're still finding time just about to um, to, to get together and, and chat I like this. I think I've said it before, life is overtaking death right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So everything's just a big, big whirlwind at the moment, which is how it should be. But um, yeah, it's just yeah. very busy and chaotic. Well, thank you very much for that story. It was very interesting. You're welcome. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing about the next Crumbles murder next time. Indeed. So join us then when once again, Dad and Daughter do you death.